You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalatu wassalamu ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursaleen. Sayyidina wa nabiyyina Abul Qasimi Muhammad. I begin in the name of Allah, the most beneficent, the most merciful, and with salutations to the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Thank you for joining us for the second session of the series on Imam Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet and icon of universal social justice. My name is Hussain Walji, and I'll be your presenter today. In the second session today, we have Imam Hussein's sacrifice to preserve the prophetic mission. That is our topic today. In order to truly understand the sacrifice and the stand that Imam Hussein took, we need to go back to what he was trying to preserve. And this is part of the six series that we have. Uh, tomorrow and the day after and the day after, we'll be talking about the other subjects that you see on the screen there. So his mission, Imam Hussein's mission in his own words was, and I, I, I read this because I do not wish to paraphrase. Imam said, and I quote, that I am not raising against Yazid as an insolent or an arrogant or a mischief monger or as a tyrant. I have risen against him as I seek to reform the Ummah, the community of my grandfather, Prophet Muhammad. And I will, I wish to bid the good and forbid the evil and to follow the way of my grandfather. So he's talking about reform of the Ummah, the community of his grandfather, and to show people the way to follow his grandfather, Prophet Muhammad. And this really leads me right into the definition as to what was the mission? What was the visage of Medina at that time that Imam Hussain was trying to leave? And what was the visage of Medina when the Prophet came from Mecca at the time of Hijra and settled in Yathrib, which was later then named as, as Medina. So the, the defining the mission statement of the Holy Prophet from the Quran, we learn, this is in Surah Al-Anbiya, the prophets, that that we have sent you not or accept, but as a mercy for all creation. The operative word here is Rahmatul lil alameen, which actually means a mercy for all creations, not just Muslims, not just for mankind, but for all creations. And that was the mission with which the Blessed Prophet was sent to us. The prevailing environment, when the Prophet was born in Mecca, and the Arab society needs to be understood as to where it was for us to understand 
as to the changes that he brought in Medina at that time? And then how did the entire thing go back to where it was? And why is it that Imam Hussein leaves Medina to say that I am going or I am leaving Medina for the Islah, for the reaffirmation of the morals as established by the Blessed Prophet? So yesterday, briefly, we covered that the Arab society at that time had no moral code. Slavery was commonly practiced. The weak had no rights or human dignity. Might was right always in that society. Young girls were buried alive. Female infanticide, due to economic and various other reasons, was practiced freely. Warfare and bloodshed was, in fact, almost like a hobby. The idolatry was prevalent everywhere. And that was called, in the Islamic terms, the age of ignorance, jahiliya in Arabic which means ignorance. And this is an Islamic concept which refers to the period of time in the state of affairs in the Arabian Peninsula before the advent of Islam in 610 Christian era. The landmarks, the teachings of Ibrahim, Abraham, of Musa, Moses, of Isa, Jesus, and other prophets were completely forgotten Every trace of monotheism was erased in the Arabian Peninsula at that time. And this is the time of the Blessed Prophet. The Arab society pre-Islam was divided into tribes. And most important was a tribe and not the individual. The tribe was everything. The individual was nothing. This was a stateless society where persons who had no protection from a tribal chief, nor part of a tribe would be killed with impunity. They had no protection. In fact, a guiding principle was called Gadu, which is a raid, an assault on the enemy tribe to steal camels and goods. So basically it was that might was right and you could do anything if you were a strong and a powerful tribe. This is what the society in Medina was at that time. As I said earlier, the common practice of infanticide used for population control in a resource scarce society where girls were the first ones to be sacrificed more often than boys because it was understood at that time that a tribe could only have a limited number of females because they were less useful as they did not participate in commerce or in raids or in war and having too many women in the tribe would risk starvation. This was the philosophy that prevailed at that time. In terms of idolatry, the most important of these was the Kaaba being located in the city of Makkah, as we know. And the Kaaba was dedicated to a particular god called Hubal. And he was then surrounded by 360 idols. The land around Makkah was a sacred area, and any act of violence there was forbidden. And to quote John Esposito in his book, The Straight Path, he says, 
that when the Prophet came, he says, and I quote Muhammad, as a reformer who condemned the practices of the pagan Arabs, such as female infanticide, exploitation of the poor, usury, murder, false contracts, and so on and so forth, is what the was a change that the Blessed Prophet brought to the society at that time. His message, as I alluded to yesterday, of la ilaha illallah, that there is no God but Allah, pointing towards the monotheism that was brought by Nabi Ibrahim, by Abraham, by Moses, by Jesus, was being reconstructed within a society that I've just described, a society of what we call the age of ignorance. And he was able to tilt the balance of tribal power. I gave an example of a slave called Bilal, who perceived the power of obeying only one, which was a creator, and he was able to challenge his masters as he was being beaten. All he could say was, one, one, ahad, meaning there is only one that I will succumb to. Amongst the early converts to the message of the prophet were parents of Ammar, one of the early companions, the names was Yasir and Sumayya was the mother. And once they were sitting and they were worshiping idols, and suddenly the idol falls from a mantelpiece and breaks into pieces. Given the discussion they had had with Amman about a creator, about Allah, they suddenly perceived that an idol that could not help itself could not help them, and they also converted. This was a direct impact of the teachings of monotheism that was brought by Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. But Makkah, unfortunately, the people of Makkah could not digest this message of monotheism because they had vested interest in not accepting the message. As Islam spread in the city of Makkah, the ruling tribes began to oppose. They did not appreciate his preaching or his condemnation of idolatry and worshiping idols. Again, as I said, they had a vested interest because they were the ones. In particular, the Quraysh tribe controlled the Kaaba and they were able to draw their religious, political, as well as financial power from this polytheistic shrine, which was the Kaaba at that time. And they began the persecution of Muslims, and many were killed and became martyrs in the cause of Islam. When the persecution began to increase, the Blessed Prophet decided to migrate to a city 200 miles away called Yathrib in 622 Christian era. When he arrives, and history tells us that the city was then renamed as the city of the prophet, the Medina of the prophet. And in, the, in his honor, today we know that city as, as Medina. But Medina has a particular significance. It is not just a city as we will see once we progress on this. But this was indeed 
the impact of the Blessed Prophet. And I'd like to share an example with you of how he behaved with the people of Makkah, how he was able to create that level of integrity for himself, that people trusted him. He was called Amin, amongst other titles that was given to him because he was considered somebody who was trustworthy. It so happened that in those days, the Kaaba was somehow damaged by fire and the clans, the powerful clans of Makkah decided to renovate the Kaaba following a major fire which had destroyed the structure of the Kaaba. As they had completed the construction or the reconstruction of the Kaaba, a question arose. This was a very important question which would have created a lot of turbulence in the society at that time. The question was, which of the tribes would have the honor to place the black stone, Hajare Aswad as it is called, back into the Kaaba, into the walls of the Kaaba? And they were pondering and they were discussing and deciding who would have the honor of doing so. They could not decide and finally they said that the next man who comes through this gate will be the one and we will ask him and ask him to say which tribe should put the hajar aswad the black stone back into the kaaba well the person who walks through the gate was none other than muhammad he had not declared his prophethood at that time so he was known as Muhammad and he walks through the gate and they ask him the question. Remember, he was about 35 years of age. This was five years before the proclamation of his prophethood. What did he do? Look at the way, the practical way he was able to avoid a major issue because if he had pointed at any one tribe, the other three tribes who were there would have been upset. What does he do? He asked them to bring a big piece of cloth. When the cloth was brought, he asked the tribal chiefs of the four tribes to hold the piece of cloth at four corners. He then puts the black stone, the Hajar Aswan, into the, the cloth they carried towards the Kaaba and Muhammad became the one who was honored with putting the black stone back onto the Kaaba, saving all this conflict that would have happened. It also gave an honor and an engagement and also an ownership of putting the stone back into the Kaaba. The story is very insightful in terms of the mindset that had to prevail to try and reform the Arab society at that time. So when he decided to migrate, this was not just any other 200 mile journey. It was a journey between two cities, which were about 200 miles apart. But its greatest significance is that it marked the beginning of an era. It marked the beginning of a civilization which is flourishing today. It began the idea of a new culture and a history 
for the entire mankind. Therefore, Islam progressed not only from the physical hijra, but it became a dynamic society in all its aspects and dimensions from a group of tribes, it became a nation state. Allow me to paint a picture of the visage of Medina at the time of this hijra. So you had different kinds of people. The first ones were the muhajirs, the people who had followed the blessed prophet from Makkah. These were residents of Makkah who followed the prophet. Unfortunately, they had left everything behind because they could not carry much with them. So these were the immigrants coming into Medina. And then you had the Ansars, who were the residents of Medina, who had invited, who loved the Prophet and had invited the Prophet to come to their city of Yathrib. And not all of them were wealthy. And here is another example as to how the Prophet was able to bring balance into the tribal society of those who were now following him, the Muhajirs and the Ansars. Because the Ansars were settled, not necessarily that they were all wealthy, but whatever they had, each Ansar adopted another Muhajir family and they shared whatever they had with them. This was the spirit with which he begins his first days or first years into the city of Medina. Of course, there were others in Medina at that time. There were Jewish tribes who were very wealthy traders and they were very anxious about this new person, this new prophet who had come and they eyed him with a lot of suspicion initially. And of course, there were the Arab pagans. They were in some ways indifferent but began to question their own beliefs slowly. And this was the visage of the city of Medina when the Prophet arrives there over a period of time. Again, the other wonderful thing and something that needs to be understood was that he brought about a unique way to govern a society. He illustrated a very symbiotic relationship between the revelation, which was the Quran, and a constitution, a way to organize society. What did he do? He did not necessarily use his status, which he could have, as a prophet, as a messenger of God, to legitimize his rule in Medina. He could well have done that. He had the following, he had the majority, and he had the power to be able to do that. But he did not do that. He did not use his stature as a messenger to become the ruler of Medina. What he did was he sought, he engaged, he wanted the ownership of the non-Muslims in accepting him as a leader of Medina. So this was not an imposed leadership. He tried to build consensus in Medina to be able to be accepted as a leader of all the people of Medina and not just the Muslims. And it was to that end that he chose to act in a spirit of democracy, agreed upon by people of diverse backgrounds, and thus was born the very first constitution 
contrary to popular thought that the U.S. Constitution is the first one. Here was born the very first Constitution, which is a recorded document in the annals of history. There was the Constitution of Medina, whereby they established firstly a concept of a community of believers or Ummatul Mu'mineen. But at the same time, he recognized the Jewish tribes living in Medina, invited them to sign onto the accord. There were a couple of tribes who refused to sign. They were not marginalized, as I spoke yesterday. And he also granted each tribe the right to be one community with the believers. And at the same time, he gave them the right to practice their own faith, their own internal rules and regulations, and allowed them to be part of the city-state of Medina. So this city-state of Medina now becomes a model pluralistic society in practice that needs to be emulated for us to understand. Where there were civil rights and responsibilities, where it respected diversity. There were Jews and there were pagans. It respected the diversity. It gave freedom of speech and religion by allowing each of those groups to practice their own faiths, following the Quranic injunction that there is no compulsion in faith. La ikraha fiddin. He practiced that and he taught people the exact meaning of the freedom of speech and religion. And at the same time, he did not marginalize them. He did not treat them any differently. He showed people the idea of the elimination of prejudice. And he made sure with the Medina constitution that you had the governance through consultation and inclusiveness. What this did was that for any society, when you have governance, when you have rules and regulations, when you have reciprocal rights and responsibilities being respected, it gives a society, any society, as we have seen in the annals of history, that such societies give a feeling of security to people. And when there is a lack of that, or when there is a perception of the lack of the idea of the freedom of speech, the adherence to the governing institution and the governing instrument as the constitution, then there may be a feeling of insecurity as some in this land today feel in the sense of what is going on around us today. It is not my subject to delve into that. I will restrict myself and hopefully we can learn something from the life and times of the blessed prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, in terms of how to strengthen the feeling of security so that all citizens in a society feel secure and feel that their well-being is taken care of. It is to treat them according to the principles of rights, of justice, and equality. And this is what he practiced, and this is what he preached. He also was amongst the first to dispel and remove the feeling of tribalism, which had prevailed during the age of ignorance and replace it by the concept of brotherhood and dare I say sisterhood too. 
So the Medina contract, as it was called, or the Medina constitution, it is now called, applied the formula of people living together with each other, regardless as a society, regardless of race, language, or religion that they had. And this idea of a pluralistic society was born in Medina through the efforts of the Prophet of Islam. He also brought about the development of trade, making sure that there was integrity in financial and business transactions. And he taught, and he was able to apply that in Medina. And as the Islamic State began to expand, that the earnings that were not honestly gained and that they were gained through bribery or interest or black markets were strictly prohibited. And it became one of the cardinal principles of the faith that he brought. But beyond all that, in order to make the transformation within human beings, because no change can come place or can take place unless the humans within a society decide to make that change. It is like a drop of water needs to be part of a bigger ocean, but the drop of ocean, the drop of water needs to move in order to make a wave. So here he said, and he emphasized the value of pure intentions when he said that Allah will not look into your body or appearance or possession. He will examine your heart and your actions. So the idea of integrity came in here to say, what is it in your heart and your heart and your hands and your ears and your mouth all act in unison so that you are what you are as we used to say in the old days, that this is what you see is what you get. This was something that he brought forth and he brought forth different aspects in addition to prayer, fasting, asking and pilgrimage was the idea of security and togetherness. And thus he had a society, the Medina society, became a model society for all humanity to see one of cooperation and solidarity. So the fulfillment of his mission as a divinely inspired reformist, that he showed kindness and compassion, not only to those who belong to the Islamic fraternity, but to those outside his fold. And therefore he was able to have the integrity and the stature and the leadership to create a morally pure, a socially vibrant, a racially and religiously coherent and an economically prosperous society. And if you look into the annals of history, this indeed was a promise of Medina. Indeed, this is an inspiring example for all of us that modern society today can learn from him the virtues of compassion, of mercy, of justice, of equality and tolerance, and how to be able to apply those in any particular governance. And there emerged what we today celebrate as the concept of social justice. The concept of social justice is to fight aggression in all its forms to bring about universal peace through mutual understanding 
and mutual effort. It requires many other parts. In the interest of time, I would just like to focus on the characteristic of a pluralistic state, where he was able to grant social and judicial autonomy to every non-Muslim community to run their own affairs. This is the meaning of the modern nation states looking at becoming nation states where social justice prevails. The American example in theory is a great example. The reality is sometimes different because human beings behave in different ways. In his own words, this is how he defined the Muslim society a concept of the society of believers and the metaphor used as a part of the body and the pain in, the, in, in one part of the body is simply amazing and so simple yet so profound to understand. He said, and I quote, that in their mutual love, compassion, sympathy for one another, believers are like one body. When one part of it suffers a complaint all other parts join in, sharing in the sleeplessness and in fear. This is how a society is supposed to feel. It is a matter of bringing in compassion. If you feel the pain, if you can see the pain of another, it's an idea of empathy within a society. It's an idea of justice. All these good principles which we keep enunciating is what we saw in the Medina society. Not only that, but his life was full of examples, some at a very basic level. But look at the level of empathy that he demonstrates when he was dealing with people at the ground level. It was the custom of the prophet that when he would sit with his companions, and a farmer would be delighted to come and share the very first harvest with the people who were sitting with the prophet. And he would come and present the very first harvest of fruits or whatever it may be to the blessed prophet as a gift and also as a part of blessing. And sure enough, this time, a farmer comes proudly and presents a basket of fruit to the blessed prophet he puts it near him. The prophet picks up one fruit and eats it, tastes it, and then he finishes it. And then he dips into the basket again and picks up the second one and finishes it, and the third one, and the fourth one. And pretty soon he had finished all the entire basket himself. Surely the fruit must have been so tasty that he did not share it. And a companion, asked him to say, oh, prophet, how is it that you eat all the fruit for yourself and do not share it with us as you usually used to? Was the fruit that tasty that you did not share it with us? And he smiled and said nothing until the farmer who had brought the fruit to him had left the assembly. And then he explained. And this is the empathy, and this is the feeling. This is the compassion that he showed towards another human being. He said, the fruit that he brought to me in his rush to present it as the first harvest 
had was not yet ripe. It was bitter. And if any one of you had eaten that fruit and you had said this fruit is bitter, it would have hurt the feeling of this man who had brought the fruit to me. It was rather that I eat the bitter fruit and ensure that one of my disciples, one of my followers, is not, his feelings are not hurt. This example is a human example of empathy in terms of how he interacted in a society. So in fulfillment of his mission, he was able to show that level of kindness and taught us to move beyond the idea of just tolerance and go towards a level of understanding. The world peace cannot be found only on understanding, but it must also be promoted through forbearance. Another example that truly needs to be understood is 623 Christian era, a deputation from the, of Christians from a place called Nazran actually come to the Prophet's mosque to, be, to debate with him on their the different theological principles. As they continue to debate, this was a Saturday and Sunday comes, and they say that we now have to go out of town, out of the boundaries of Medina to conduct our services because it is Sunday. And his answer was that conduct your prayers right here in the mosque because it is a place consecrated to God. This was a vision. This was a vision of pluralism. This was a vision of empathy, compassion, and justice that he was showing to Christians who had come to debate him and in fact challenge his own authority as a prophet. And yet he had the courtesy to say, you don't need to go out of the lines or city lines of Medina. You can come and you can remain here and pray right here in the mosque of Medina. So this was the historic role of the Islamic community at that time. There was this true embodiment of the virtuous, the wholesome and the noble. And he was able to set the highest standards of performance and be a reference point for others. The Quran has a beautiful example and a beautiful injunction for all Muslims, where the Quran says, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَتَ لِتَقُونُوا شُهَدَىٰ عَلَى النَّاسِ That we have made you a middle nation. We have made you a nation most balanced so that you may be a witness. You may be an example over other people. Well, this was a living embodiment of his mission in the historic role of the Islamic community as Ummat Wasata, as a balanced nation within which everybody could thrive. So that was the Medina that I've described was being changed in less than 50 years. Society had gone back to its old ways of tribalism and nepotism and all the other ills in less than 50 years after this society, the ideal society of Medina was established. The inequity and injustice 
had become so rampant that the 10th century historian Masudi opines, and I quoted this yesterday, just to give you a flavor of what was happening, that in the Muslim Ummah, in the community of believers that had been created by the blessed prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, had now been turned into where Yazid was like a pharaoh amongst his subjects. This is how he usurped the leadership of the Muslim nation, and this is how he was ruling. And it was that stand against falsehood that Hussein was compelled to take. When the pristine values, as taught by the Quran, were being flouted with impunity by the likes of Yazid, and this was something that he was compelled. This is what compelled the dear grandson of the Prophet Hussein to stand up against him and against all those who promoted and followed Yazid for truth and justice. So what was this unique strategy for reform? And God willing, inshallah, we will talk in detail tomorrow in terms of how that consciousness was, uh, was aroused. But I'd like to quote one of the major authors and thinkers of the subcontinent. Ali Naki Nakawi is known as within the subcontinent, Nakan Saib, and he wrote a book called Shayda Insaniyat, a martyr for mankind, uh, which is also available in English. And he writes, and I quote, that his unique strategy for reform was to revive in the people the capacity to feel and awaken in them the power to think for themselves. Again, the idea of critical thinking, where people need to think for themselves. We cannot be thought followers in every case. In terms of our theology, in terms of our beliefs, we cannot follow anyone else. It has got to come with the power to think for ourselves, to think independently and to restore to them the courage to give free expression to the dictates of their conscience. This was Hussein's strategy of reform to say, think for yourself. Indeed, when he finally faced the men and the army of Yazid, and he said, even if you are, by the way, they were Muslims. He said, even if you do not follow any religion, at least think like free men as to what you're doing. This is how he was able to awaken that consciousness in the society. So this is why Hussein leaves Medina because that Medina and the Muslim empire at the time, the nation state had expanded as we saw yesterday to much wider areas had been decimated in terms of its, its practices in terms of his principles, and one had to stand against that so that that does not become the norm. And for Islam and the pristine values to survive, we will talk more about that tomorrow, God willing, in the third session, which is that this was more than a political battle. It was more than a battle for leadership. 
It was a stand against tyranny and oppression. It was a matter of saving the very spirit of Islam. Thank you so much for listening. And I greet you with an Islamic greeting of saying, Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. May peace and blessings be upon you. Thank you very much for listening.